Hi, I'm Lisa Moore, one of the pastors here at GT Church in Victoria, BC. Welcome to our podcast. All of the content you'll find here is meant to point you to Jesus and to encourage you in your journey wherever you're at. Enjoy the message. Good morning. Wonderful to see you today. I'm very, very happy uh, to continue our series in the book of Acts. And we've been on quite a journey, haven't we? Uh, we've got ourselves all the way through into chapters 8. Today will be chapter 9. In chapter 8, following the end of chapter 7, it's really quite special that we're here in this part of the text today because it is World Refugee Sunday. And in our storyline of the book of Acts, last week, if you were here, we talked about the tragic death of Stephen, who was our first Christian martyr. And when chapter 8 of Acts opens, it says that there was a great persecution that broke out at that time against the Christians. And so from almost the inception of Christianity, there has been a Christian refugee because they had to flee. They had to flee to protect themselves. And so they fled to all different regions of um, the area and beyond and tried to find pockets of community, tried to survive. But the plan of those who killed Stephen was to squash Christianity. But really, all they did was lit a fire that spread it. And Christianity began to spread all over the region, as far and wide as people were willing to travel. And so we get to see now what happens next, because the attempts to stop this movement failed, even with persecution. And so our storyline today is going to take us into chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at something very, very special. Um, We're going to look at From Violence to Surrender, the Conversion of the Apostle Paul. You know, it is quite amazing to think about the different people who have come to faith in different circumstances, whether it's, you know, uh, brilliant scientists or um, famous uh, musicians or incredible athletes or, 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 you know, you take your pick from a sphere of life. Even staunch atheists becoming Christians. Uh, Something about the power of the gospel touching lives and transforming people. One of those um, staunch atheists was a man named Lee Strobel. And Lee Strobel uh, was a lawyer and an investigative journalist. And his wife, Leslie, became a Christian. And he was fuming. He, he couldn't believe it. And in his book, Case for Christ, he lays out his investigative work to prove Christianity wrong in order to save his wife from whatever it was that she had got herself into. And if you read the book, you'll see that he does use his investigative skills and develops a series of tests meeting with people reading eyewitness accounts, uh, you know, uh, the validity of the Bible, the possibility of survival from crucifixion, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And at the very end of the book, I think it's in page 361, it's somewhere, you know, close to the end, but sort of, you know, still some left. He talks about his own dramatic conversion, 
how he had to face the evidence and the facts that the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, the, the, the reality of the gospel had come to bear on him and he was literally forced by his own investigative work to believe. It's a really fantastic book and for those of you that don't read, it's also a movie, so you can watch Case for Christ. You look it up. It's, uh, it's wonderful. I, I, when I watched it, I did, I did you know, get misty because there's a, a powerful sense of the, the life of God meeting a, an unlikely person. And this is what God does. But the interesting thing is when well-known people become Christians, people are usually skeptical about it, Right? Uh, did they, did they really, are they really Christians? Um, did they really experience transformation? And we can be skeptical, but also we can feel a little concerned. Maybe it's a, a spouse or a, a child or a friend who has confessed their faith in Jesus. And yet you're looking and saying, yeah, but I don't see a big change in your life. I don't know if I'm seeing the evidence yet of this conversion. And let me just help you, okay? Because I want to settle you today. You may not be seeing the changes you hoped for, but the reason why we find ourselves in this position is because we confuse conversion with maturity. And they're not the same thing. Conversion is something that can happen and does happen in a moment, but maturity happens over time. So you might be finding yourself, yeah, but shouldn't they clean themselves up a bit? You know, clean up their act before we give them our, you know, Christian seal of approval, right? I mean, you know, we can get ourselves into places where we think that way, but I think when we are thinking that way, we need to shake ourselves, and I'll tell you why. Because we've forgotten the grace of God in our own lives. We've forgotten what God did in us. Somewhere along the way, we misplaced what Jesus had done in our lives. We've forgotten our miserable state before Jesus came to us. And just because Jesus comes to us doesn't mean that our conversion equals our maturity. We don't accept Christ and now have a database of 66 books of the Bible, right? That's not how it works. Somewhere along the way, we, we can forget God's grace and how far his grace has brought us and, and that his grace is still at work in us. Amen? Yeah. <laughs> Come on, you got to say amen to that. We need the grace of God at work in our lives right now, in this moment. Amen. Because while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And it's by grace that you've been saved not by your works, so no one can boast. This is a powerful truth. And that's why here at Coastline Church, we always want to make clear there is a difference between salvation and freedom, between salvation and maturity. You see, salvation comes to us at conversion. When we confess that Jesus is Lord of our lives and salvation finds us, our spirit is reborn, ready for heaven, perfect because of Christ's sacrifice for us. But how many of you know our bodies and our souls still need to work a lot of stuff out? 
We're on a journey, and that journey lasts a long time. I like the way Reverend Alan Redpath said it. He said it this way. The conversion of the soul is the miracle of a moment. The manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. Hey? That's a big difference, isn't it? And so remember this as we look at the most dramatic conversion story, I believe, in all of history, but specifically in your Bible. The conversion of the Apostle Paul, who, when we pick, his, pick up his story, he is called Saul. Saul is a Hebrew name, and Paul reflects more of a Greek name. And Paul, or Saul became Paul within the context of conversion, of mission, of calling to the Gentile world. And so we're going to see Saul. You're going to see Saul and Paul at different places in your Bible. Don't be alarmed. Same guy, Okay. You know, um, I like what Nicky Gumbel said about the conversion of the Apostle Paul. He said, imagine if a former member of ISIS ended up as the Pope, and you'll be close to understanding what happened to the Apostle Paul. <laughs> I mean, this is fantastic. This is dramatic. And there were few opponents of Christianity that reached such a horrible low as the Apostle Paul did. Saul of Tarsus was an awful man. He was a hateful man. And Paul's violent past is something that, because we read 13 books in our New Testament written by him, is something that kind of makes us a bit uncomfortable. At least it does for me. I think of him as this great man of God, but the truth is he owned his infamy. In fact, let's read it together. Let's look at how he explained his past. Acts 22, verses 4 and 5. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can, testify, can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus. I'm giving away a bit of our storyline here. And went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. His infamy continues. In Acts 26, he shares his story again. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Bad guy. Bad guy. One more, Galatians 1, verse 13. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Bad guy. Bad guy on a bad mission. Augustine called Paul's conversion the violent capture of a rebel will. You see, God arrested him in a powerful way. How did this happen? How was this terrorist turned into an apostle? I mean, it's absolutely a fantastic and amazing piece of, of Christian history. But Paul tells it in his own words to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.13. He says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. One day, God's mercy met Paul's life. 
And today is a wonderful day to experience the mercy of God for yourself. Today is a wonderful day for us to be reminded of the mercy of God, to once again shake ourselves and say, thank you, God, for your amazing grace. So Acts chapter 9 actually begins abruptly. We get to the end of chapter 8, and chapter 9 begins abruptly, and we see Saul, his blood is boiling. He's in a murderous rampage. He charges north out of Jerusalem through the Galilee region, which was Jesus' sort of headquarters. I can imagine it just making him more irritated with every step he took. And he gets up to Mount Hermon and up to the very tip top and down the other side, and he sees Damascus shining like a gem down in the valley below and somewhere in the middle of this God arrests him he is on his way pushed by blind hatred he's bloodthirsty and he's going toward his destination which was Damascus let's read the story as it begins Acts chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 meanwhile Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. I've read that a lot. I've never actually thought about that. He's literally telling everybody, I'm going to kill them. I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to murder them all. He's breathing out murderous threats. He went to the high priests in this rage and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which is what they called that early gathering of Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Why Damascus? 240 kilometers from Jerusalem. Well, Paul was just getting more and more angry because with the persecution and death of of Stephen, the persecution of the church, they spread all over the place. And now he's got to go 240 miles to try to get to the very end of this mess and work backwards to eliminate this scourge. And so he chooses to go all the way to Damascus. Damascus had a large Jewish population. It's a place where persecuted Christians would have gone. They would have found Jews there that may have not been so hostile toward them. There would have been some familiarity, some place to understand and share language. And basically, Paul goes all the way there. Saul at this time goes all the way there to execute his plan. His plan, storm the city and capture the infidels, (laughs) the turncoats, and drag them back and into court and make them pay. But thankfully, God had a different plan. I just love this. Let's read verses three and four. This is such a great story. And I'm, I'm so guilty of reading right past it, but it is fantastic. As he neared Damascus on his journey, so you can see him, he's come, like I said, through the Galilee region, up Mount Hermon to the top where there's these lightning storms and, and because the valley's so warm. And so he comes through this you know, stormy area and starts down toward Damascus. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So let me just back up a minute. I I mentioned to you that the lightning is nothing strange because of the warm air coming off of the valley and the cold air on Mount Hermon, lightning strikes and, and lightning storms are very typical there. 
So I don't even know if Paul first realized what was happening on, happening when he heard the lightning strike. He would have been thinking, oh yeah, it's a storm on Mount Hermon heading toward Damascus. It's kind of a typical thing. But it flashed around him and he fell to the ground. I wonder if he thought he got struck by lightning. And you know what? Maybe he did. <laughs> But it was holy lightning at least. And he got struck or whatever happened and he fell to the ground. He heard this voice saying to him, why do you persecute me? And at this moment, Saul's murderous journey comes to a divine halt. Everything's changed now. This encounter is so dramatic. And isn't that just like the Lord? I mean, no announcement, no heavenly calligraphy, Hey, Saul, you better not go to Damascus tomorrow because if you do, I'm going to get you. There's no interruption at the point he allowed Saul to proceed with his murderous plan until when he was about to drop the crushing blow, God stepped in. It's just like God. Without warning, the course of Saul's life is forever changed, dramatically changed. And the funny thing is, is this still happens. It still happens. And what do I mean? Well, without warning, we all know life can take a sudden turn, right? We may not know that it's coming, but it comes. A spouse leaves, a child dies, a bad diagnosis, a lost job. And like a rogue wave, we're tossed in the surf and a jolt kind of awakens us to the reality that it's only God who can help us now. We're stuck. It's amazing to think about how suddenly life can turn. And so for the first time, this proud, self-sustained man named Saul found himself blind and literally pinned to the ground by the finger of God. The drama here is fantastic. Put yourself in that situation. Can you imagine how overwhelming the feelings would be? But Saul's still quite confused. Because although he was blind, he could still hear. <laughs> and what he was hearing made him more confused. This voice spoke in that darkness, saying to him, Saul, Saul, why, do you why, why are you persecuting me? And Saul didn't know what to say, so he asked, who are you? Who is it that's talking to me? And he uses an interesting word here. He uses the word Lord. He says, who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and some, some people go, ah, there it was. There's this conversion. Not really. This word is a very common word. It means Lord and master. It's sort of a lowercase Lord. It's a lowercase master. It's, it's curios, which means it's more like, you know, if you were going to use it in our context, it would be like being polite, like saying sir. So here's the guy, flat on the ground, blind, you know, Here's a voice, can't see a thing, and he says, who are you, sir? Where are you, sir? Who are you, Lord? Obviously, I'm going to need some help here. And then Jesus speaks to him. Second part of Acts 9, verse 5, he says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Those words must have hung in the air for what seemed like an eternity reverberating in the ears of Saul. Bloodthirsty, murderous, enraged on his way to snuff out this cultic false messiah 
And all of the sudden, on the way, it would have taken some time for that to sink in, don't you think? You can imagine. He's laying there, hearing this voice. What starts to go through his mind? Jesus? I, I thought you were dead. Jesus? You really are? Lord? Capital L? You're, you're the Messiah? I've had it so wrong. What about Stephen? What about that sweet family last week that I, I remember their faces? Can you imagine all that began to go through his mind as he lay there hearing those dramatic words? I'm Jesus. That's who you're persecuting. The flash of thought and complexity and emotion would have been ripping his insides out. And Saul was sure that he was persecuting people. He was persecuting this occult group that was trying to pollute Judaism, of which he had given his life to. But instead, in this moment, he discovers that the true object of his brutality had been Jesus, and Jesus is the true Messiah. Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Remember what Jesus said to his disciples when they run you out of town, when they treat you badly? When they harm you, it's really not you. It's me. And here it is in the text. I'm the one you're persecuting, Paul, the true Messiah. And, and, and then what Augustine's words so beautifully said is happening. His rebel will was captured. Right at that very moment, his journey reversed direction. His mind did a turnaround and that would ultimately transform his whole life and his whole future and his whole experience. And and this is repentance. The word is metanoia in the Greek. It means to change your mind. Is there any possibility that this man would ever be the same again? No, no. No, this was a moment of transformation and repentance that, of course, now looking forward, looking at the rest of the Bible, we see, you know, that Paul really did have this transforming experience that really catalyzed, uh, in many ways, the the function of the church and the the work of the church and and church planting efforts and, and spoke to the, you know, the context of the early church and the theology of the early church and even our theology today. And so I want to just stay on this theme of repentance because I really believe it's what's laid over the top of a conversion experience. Because repentance begins with obedience. At some point, we come face to face with the reality that God is right and we have been wrong and the choice is laid before us. What are we going to do? And so as Paul laid there on his face hearing these words, you know, working through these complex emotions, Jesus continues. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. And then in verse 6, now get up and go into the city. Keep going. You're going to Damascus. Go on in and you'll be told what you must do. That's really important. All of a sudden, Jesus immediately asserts his authority over this life. Get up. Go into the city. And I'm going to tell you what you need to do. 
when you're blind, when you're flabbergasted, when you know all of a sudden you've been wrong all your life, when you come to that place where you're realizing, how could I have got this so wrong? And you start replaying all the things of your life that you've done that were selfish, self-centered, hurt others. At some point, you're so thankful when you repent and Jesus says, okay, I'm just gonna tell you what to do now. I'm gonna lead your life. I'm gonna take you somewhere and it's gonna be good. We're gonna, we're gonna start to undo the past and start to create a new future. And so for decades, Paul controlled his own life, didn't he? His record in Judaism was second to none. And he was on his way to Damascus to make his name even greater in Jerusalem. You know, this Alexander the Great coming into Damascus and pulling back all of the prisoners to Jerusalem. You can imagine, he had this image in his mind. But God's presence stopped him flat and changed everything, striking him blind. He falls to the ground, stunned. You see, he always did what he wanted to do. Paul's life was about what he thought should be done, about the rules, the right way, lots of, of spiritual or at least religious activity. But from now on, Jesus is the Lord, capital L, the master, capital M, and he follows Christ. And so... Now, it's Jesus, what do you want me to do? Now, what's your focus for me, Jesus? Now, what's your will? And if you watch closely through the book of Acts, you're gonna see how many times it's the spirit that restrains Paul. It's the spirit that directs Paul. It's the spirit that softens Paul. It's the spirit that helps Paul recover. Why? Because he knew he had to listen and obey repentance begins with obedience. Repentance also requires humility. Ah, this proud man is on his knees, hey? Pinned to the ground, stunned, blind. Wow, what, what a humility. Let's read on a little bit more. We'll see it even a bit more. Verse seven, it says, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This is such a humble posture. I am literally undone. My faculties have been transformed. I don't know what happened in those days of blindness, waiting for Ananias, who we're going to meet in just a minute. But I have a feeling that God was speaking deeply to Saul. That there was a transforming work going on. He went from thinking he could see to being blind so he could really see. I, I can only imagine what it is that the Lord began to say to him and reveal to him and show him. But I do know one thing. In those days, he was praying. I can only imagine the, the humility and the flow of, God, I was so wrong. I got it so wrong. I'm so sorry. Help me. I'll do whatever it is. You, you've seen how passionately I am when I get onto something. Just 
Show me what I need to do. He had to humbly come to God. And so do all of us. Hebrews 11 says, anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. There is a coming to God. There is a humbly coming to God that says, I will earnestly seek you. I believe you exist. And that was the experience, Jesus. You're the one I was persecuting. I thought for sure you were gone. This was a, a... you know, something that needed to be destroyed, but now I know how wrong I was. You know, humility helps us in our repentance. It, it, repentance requires humility, but it's also, it's also important to know that humility allows other people to be a part of your story. Pride puts you in isolation, but humility invites others in, and, and that's what we see next with the Apostle Paul. He's praying, and while he's praying, a, a man named Ananias, who was a disciple in Damascus, got a message from God. God said to him, Jesus said to him, I want you to go and I want you to go to this location. You're going to find this guy named Saul. And I want you to pray for him. He's been praying to me and, 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 and I want you to go to him and I want you to lay your hands on him that he can receive his sight. And Ananias said, can we just have a quick conversation about this, Lord? I've heard about this guy. I know what he's doing. It, can, am I going to my death, Lord? Is my obedience to you right now meaning I'm going to die? I, I'm going to go. But really? This guy? I mean, maybe it felt a little unbelievable that this guy could change You know, there's just some people that we go like, oh man, hell has a hot place for you. (laughs) But if God can reach Saul, he can reach anybody. So Ananias says, okay, I'll go and and I'll do what you said. And so in, in verse 17, it says, then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, Hey, we're already family here. Maybe it was just the sight of him. When he saw him in his humility, when he saw him in that place, he said, oh, Christ has already done such a work in you. But he puts his hands on him with, with a sense of assurance and confidence. He puts his hands on him and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, like he knew the story, God had revealed it to him. He has sent me, so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to read on. Can we read on? Verse 18. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. The truth is, After several days, he starts to do, you know, he starts to tell people in the synagogue and so on, but about Jesus. But the truth is he spent three years in Damascus. Uh, That's amazing. He spent three years learning from the people he wanted to murder. (laughs) 
amazing. The grace of God is so wonderful, friends. And I just believe that for some of us here, the grace of God is just reaching to you today. It's, it's like there doesn't need to be anybody else in the room. God's speaking to your heart. You know, there's a great story about a great song. A song we sing called Amazing Grace. It's written by a man named John Newton. And John was a, a slave trader. He ran a slave ship. And he had a dramatic conversion. He was on a ship in the Atlantic in a raging storm. It was his lightning and face down moment. And he was completely transformed. And from that transformation, completely changed his life, became an Anglican minister. He's a wonderful story of working toward abolishing slavery, working to abolish his own previous trade. There's some similarities here. But he wrote a song called Amazing Grace. <laughs> he was writing it about himself, but, it, but he was writing it about the Apostle Paul. And he's, he wrote it for countless millions others who would hear that song and say, me too. Luke, would you come and help me sing it? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And I think there's two things going on here. Somebody needs to sing that song for the first time and say, Thank you for your grace, Jesus. I receive you. Be Lord, capital L, in my life. But others of us can sing it with such gratitude that we're kind of going to use it as a way to shake ourselves and to say, oh God, thank you for your grace in my life. Could we stand to our feet and could we sing these potentially familiar words? If not, that's okay. We're putting them up anyway. But let's sing this together and let's let it be our confession of faith or our celebration of a good God who loves us. Amen? Amen. Let's sing it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. It was great.
the team's going to come and we're going to sing together a closing song but before we do I, I just I just had an impression today that there's people who are here and I just want to be Ananias for a minute and say that the Lord sent me to pray for you so that you might receive the Spirit of God, the confirmation that in you is eternal life, and that if there's scales on your eyes, they're just going to fall right off. And there's going to be a clarity to how you see the world. And it might just be totally different. And so, Lord, for those who are in the room today, who have wrestled with you, who have in many ways formed a life based on their best idea of what life should look like. But today, Lord, you are speaking to them. I pray for them, Lord. I, I extend my hands toward them. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would grant them the grace to receive through repentance and today to have an conversion experience where their life is forever changed. Holy Spirit, testify to them that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and fill them with your precious spirit. And in Jesus' name, we pray that scales like chains would fall off in Jesus' name that today would be the beginning of liberty, the beginning of growth, the beginning of a new perspective and a new day. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.